0: Pandemic Spring 2020. No helicopters. Let's see if this will work. Hold on. I'm going to read you a story, and it's called Hollywood and Mine, and I wrote it. Nobody thought of me as a virgin. I guess I had these slinky eyes and a sense of humor. Myrna Loy. And this is chapter one. There's a hardware store on Santa Monica Boulevard, just over the border from Beverly Hills in West Hollywood which sells thick orange rubber gloves, named after a famous French courtesan, Du It was like some aged copywriter on Madison Avenue still envisioned a beleaguered ideal of a woman with a full-time job, two kids, and domestic chores, scrubbing her pots and pans at the sink or stripping down an old varnish-encrusted piece of furniture and feeling as sensuous and sophisticated as the woman who romped with Louis XV. That's kind of a nice antiquated idea, but it didn't exactly work out that way in modern Hollywood. I imagined that when the DuBerry Company originated the brand back in the 20s, it seemed like a stroke of brilliance, but by 1980, it was old hat, or old glove at least. Despite that, I, at the time, a 19-year-old dreamer about to flunk out of Harvard hard, liked that something so anachronistic with such a bizarrely inappropriate reference to a naughty historical personage existed just 10 blocks down from where I lived. Or it's where I lived then. At the time, I probably should have paid more attention to the part of Madame's story that's always eclipsed by the tale of a young beauty with a brilliant and conniving mind that went from nobody to official mistress to the king. DuBerry fell victim to the guillotine, lost her head, in over her head, heads rolled. At any rate, at a certain point, she was considered passé and dangerous, and the rest is history. Late in the summer following my sophomore year, I was living in the Beverly Hills home of a blonde former figure skater. This photogenic darling of Orange County had risen from championship skating to spokesperson at Knudsen's Dairy. To management. She married an actor, of sorts, and from there hopped over to a full-time job at Fox. She had met Mr. Major Movie Star on a commercial promoting California cheese, which was arguably a metaphor for something. He brought home considerable bacon, more even than she, who could not claim to be poorly recompensed for her tireless efforts to assist the studio in the decline of cultural conversation broadcast journalism, and perhaps even civilization itself. Accruing this unseemly sum of money replaced domestic responsibility on both their parts. Hence, I found myself hired to take care of Ms. Suits and Mr. Starr's children, Isabel and Andrew. I rejoiced in the title of au pair, which suggested, in my mind at least, a certain allan, an air of French sophistication and an expertise in child-rearing I did not possess. Ironic, really, for the closest I'd ever been to France was when I had watched an incomprehensible Jean-Luc Godard film at an art house cinema, while the sum total of my knowledge of children came from having been one not so long ago. The truth was, I hailed from Cape Ann, Massachusetts. I was the daughter of what my mother rather archaically referred to as nautical stock. Cape Ann was a place whose inhabitants could proudly trace their lineage to whaling fleets and South Seas expeditions, or at least they affected to. Within the community, there were rather tangled thoughts on ancestry that glossed over generations of grandfathers who introduced venereal disease to Tahiti and instead focused with reverence on funny little artifacts, like the scrimshaw and shells in grandmother's china cupboard. It was also an area where you heard words like ghastly, fractious, and dim, applied by the Anglo side of the family to the Italian side. The dark side, the side I took after, preferred these handy phrases. Leca piedi, boot licking, scazza pain in the ass. Growing up in Gloucester, it stank of fish sticks, courtesy of Gortons, and I couldn't wait to get out. I knew ocean air was supposed to be bracing, but for me it was nothing but salt spume and rotting chum, neither of which appealed. At 18, I rattled down the coast to Cambridge in a 16-year-old Dodge Dart that needed piston work and a new timing belt. There I was housed in a quad, a triumph for a freshman, with a San Franciscan whose sock drawers bulge with a formidable stash of weed, and two studious Midwesterners. One evening in my second year I found myself doing something that if I hadn't been so high would have confirmed the nagging feeling that I wasn't exactly making the best use of my time at college. The hours leading to midnight found me stoned out of my mind, staring into the soulful eyes of a border collie, explaining the path of a point on a parabolic curve. In my less than sober state, the collie's eyes anchored me. The very existence of this dog, who in reality was probably concerned with nothing more than when it would next be eating, was something solid to hold onto in a swirl of extremely altered perceptions. When I woke the following morning, I resolved to make a change. No more toking and a hell of a lot more studying. My timing was, however, unfortunate. I failed integral calculus the very same day as I made the vow, and within two weeks was working shucking clams at a seafood bar, another briny hell near Faneuil Hall. The first roof over my head that summer was courtesy of a friend of a friend who was house-sitting in a red-brick colonial on a leafy street in Brookline. The house's owner, a political science professor, little suspected that his home was harboring a swarm of students while he vacationed in Europe. Nor was he aware that the students were using his phone to make any number of free illegal calls using an access code, the origin of which was hazy, that was circulated from one college campus to another, up and down the eastern seaboard. In retrospect, hijacking a telephone code was the least of my sins that summer. And since I'd stopped attending confession uh, about the same time I stopped taking piano lessons, I never atoned. Achieving a state of grace was the furthest thing from my mind. What I wanted was out. Out of Gloucester, out of Boston, out beyond the familiar and the known. That summer I was working at a seafood bar. It was called Tonino's and was owned by my mother's second cousin's husband, Silvio. He was what Brits of the upper middle class might have once called an unsavory individual, if not for the fact that he was so unsavory that the term didn't pack the requisite punch. One evening, Silvio, yeah, like the character from The Sopranos or the mediocre Dylan song, entered the prep kitchen in which I had a blade wedged deep within an unfortunate bivalve. I had barely managed to pop open the abductee from Duxbury Bay with a swift twist of the knife, exposing it glistening and heaving into the air, when Silvio, who I had always been encouraged to call Cousin Silvio, although he wasn't my cousin, one of those peculiar family quirks, snatched the squishy thing from my hand and plopped it into his capacious gullet. Like an ocean breeze, he confided, giving me an indefinable wink. I scowled at this, a scowl that only deepened as he beckoned me into his office like Caligula, summoning a catamite to his bedchamber. The office was behind the kitchen and before the walk-in. In my three weeks of employment, the office was always locked and empty. This time it was brightly lit and the door was wide open. It housed a desk, a filing cabinet, and a rotary phone. The walls were covered with yellowed family photographs of Cousin Silvio's mother and father. They were wiry, with jet black hair molded into pompadours and in later years a crew cut for him and one of those head-capping short flips of the 50s for her. And a coterie of plump little boys the plumpest of which, I assumed, was married to my second cousin. Silvio pushed the only chair in the room my way. It didn't look like it could accommodate his broad behind, and he leaned back against the desk. So, you good with kids? I asked if he wanted me to babysit, and he replied, Kinda. I got a cousin, a real cousin, like I was some shoddy substitute for a true blood tie out in Hollywood. He needs a nanny for the rest of the summer, Dave Taylor, you know? Yes, I knew Dave Taylor. He was 38, handsome as hell, and had just peeked at the box office in a movie about an over-the-hill baseball player. He recently had done his duty to the studio in a press junket, and I had seen him as he saturated the afternoon airwaves on Donahue and The Mike Douglas Show and Merv Griffins extolling his oh shucks old-fashioned sense of chivalry his reverence of women I'm just a lucky guy from the north end his fairy tale marriage and his two beautiful children who he and his wife were raising to be just plain apple pie eating good-natured all-americans or something to that effect I bought into the mythos I was a half-wit adolescent and I leapt at the chance to travel west the gold-kissed couple who had entrusted me with the development of their offspring had me take a cab into Beverly Hills from LAX, which cost a head-spinning $30. The movie star and studio executive had never called or set eyes on me. The entire transaction had been overseen by Silvio, whose only intimation as to my future had been advised to pack a lot of sunscreen. On arriving at their front gate... I was buzzed in via intercom by nine-year-old Andrew, a rangy little guy with an elfin face and a polished vocabulary. His little sister, Isabel, tailed behind him at all times like a stubborn satellite. They were cute, and then some. They peered up at me quizzically as Andrew pronounced, I'm supposed to show you your new room. Candace left last week. How old are you? I replied that I was 19, to which he responded, okay, please follow me. Then still staring at me, he said, Billy, your name's Billy? He seemed surprised I was a girl. I assured him my name was Billy Price and he nodded like all he needed was a voice confirmation of my gender. And then he set off with Isabel in tow. The house, strike that, make it the mansion was 11,000 square feet and shaped in a U around a tiled courtyard in its center, a glistening blue pool. The east wing housed the kitchen, the maid's room downstairs, the kids' rooms upstairs, and my room adjacent. The core of the home had the living, dining, and entertaining areas, and the west wing was for the grown-ups, I supposed a kind of marital Shangri-La buffered from day-to-day events. At the time, I had very romantic notions. My introduction to Andrew and Isabel's parents took place that night in the kitchen while I was doctoring a can of baked beans with onions and ketchup, topping some iceberg lettuce with seven seas Italian, and grilling some hot dogs to feed my new charges. I don't know if it was the processed feast I was preparing for the kids or just my face that caused Mrs. Taylor's jaw to drop when she sighted me. If I had spent the time to consider, I would have definitely said it was the presence of breasts on my torso that set Mrs. Taylor off. On the other hand, Mr. Taylor was grinning like he'd just got the governor's reprieve from the electric chair. He flung out his arms as he approached me and crowed, Billy! Billy's a nice East Coast girl. Harvard, right? Mrs. Taylor stared at Mr. Taylor. My cousin said you went to Harvard. Billy Price from Harvard. I nodded, and he gave me a one-armed hug around the shoulders. Apparently, Mrs. Taylor had been led to believe I was a young gentleman from Harvard, a former camp counselor who was related by marriage to her husband, a suitable replacement for Candace, who, as it turns out, had shagged Mr. Taylor one afternoon while the kids were at school and she was on the studio lot. At the time, I was the only thing they had going, so instead of packing me off back to Boston, I was given a schedule and a cash float and let loose with Andrew and Isabel. The kids guided me to their favorite place, Coldwater Canyon Park, a triangle of green just above Sunset Boulevard, where they played with their friends, and I met their friends' summer companions, a group of young women just like myself, all between 18 and 21, all college girls. We congregated while the children ran and screamed and pelted each other with dirt and foliage and played our own games, which tended to be verbal instead of physical. Our favorite was a variation on the current, who'd you rather? It involved calling to mind some prominent fossil and querying, would you sleep with X for a million dollars? followed by the admonition. Oh, oh, and you have to be serious. For example, I was asked, would you sleep with Ronald Reagan for $1 million? Recalling that the presidential candidate was in his 70s and older than my grandfather, I declined. Okay, how about Ed McMahon was the next challenge. No way, I said, while Polly, an intense redhead that was studying law at USC, took a drag on her cigarette and then dropped the butt beneath her heel and ground it out. Polly squinted in the direction of Nell, her eight-year-old summer task, and said, I would. Yeah, we girls chorused around her. I sure as hell would, Polly rejoined. I'm up to my eyes in school loans. Screw the million. I'd do it for $10,000 and a Quaalude. Polly made us all seem frivolous. Here was a girl who really did take the game seriously. She tapped another cigarette out of her pack and held it unlit by the side of her jaw with studied grace. There were tortoise shell combs pulling back her hair at her temples, which tumbled in perfect waves over her shoulders. She wore a vintage blouse with shoulder pads. Her expression was wry, and she looked as if she was ready to face down Spencer Tracy in divorce court on behalf of Judy Holliday note. If you haven't seen the old film Adam's Rib, I recommend it. Darla, an Irish transplant studying at Cal Arts, shook her head in disbelief and then let fly a string of expletives only a sweet-souled Catholic girl could produce. For feck's sake, you're talking rubbish. Why do you say things like that? Really, Polly, really? What is it you don't like? The drugs or the dollar amount? Polly asked. Look, lads, That was another language tick of Darla's. Guys translated to lads. What I don't for fuck all like is that you're shrinking down your soul, diminishing yourself. When Darla was feeling righteous, she shook her wild dark brown curls and narrowed her green eyes to sharp slits. Her cheeks were flushed and she was completely unaware of her own beauty. There was a quality in Darla both, I would say, rarefied and fierce. It flamed up always at the tip of her tongue before ebbing away into a joke or a saucy aside. No, I'm not. This whole game is about what you do for the money. It's about assigning value. I'm just being real. I do it for a reduced rate and a pill to take the edge off, asserted Polly. Darla wouldn't let it go. Fuck no, you wouldn't. Yeah, I would. Nell, a supersonic dart of energy, burst into Polly's field of vision and then headed straight into her kneecaps. Flinging her skinny arms around Polly's legs, she directed her plea to Polly's crotch. Can we go to Baskin-Robbins, please? Polly held on to Nell as the child arched her spine back and beamed up at her face. Polly couldn't help but smile. Anybody else want to go to the valley? Yes. No. Wait, voiced Jane Dryden a girl from Pasadena whose highest aspiration was to work as an account executive at Leo Burnett in Chicago, an ad agency noted for their clever humor. After she finished her degree at Syracuse University, a preppy reject school, smack dab in the middle of a hideous snow belt. Jane favored her sun streaked blonde hair cut short, her lipstick bright shiny pink, and her earlobes bedecked with sparkly little diamonds. She radiated big, brown-eyed, can-do spirit. Always a multitasker, she tuned into the secret histories of our employers, corralled three hyper-verging on violent boys, Ryan, Patrick, and Sean, and knew that on the weekends you were liable to get picked up by another woman at Peanuts on Sunset Boulevard, and that, for the best dancing, it was the Crush Bar on Cahuenga in Hollywood. Another tidbit she provided was that we, her new friends, were to never, ever pay any attention to a well-known actor at Chalet Gourmet, where he was often seen haunting the aisles. An innocuous hello on his part, and a question about quail versus squab could lead to a very pleasant, very prolonged evening sans clothes, after which we would certainly join the ranks of thousands of young ladies who never saw the star again. She recounted all this with the happy countenance of a California native, her bright disposition a product of generations who could pluck an orange straight from a backyard tree, peel it with tanned hands, and savor the sweetness while it was warm from the winter sun. However, at that moment, Jane's attention was focused on a woman about 28 or 30, who was walking hand-in-hand hand with an ethereal-looking teeny-tiny girl. The girl had enormous eyes and the stature of a four-year-old, but not the bobblehead. She must have been about six, and she had broken off from the woman and was making a bee-line for Jane's monsters a little glossy gossamer puff floating mindlessly into a maelstrom of pure boy. I tensed. Darla gasped, shite! Polly turned Nell's head away. Jane was inhaling enough air to bellow, hands off you animals, when the tiny one caught the eye of the biggest one, Ryan. Ryan let out a whoop of recognition ran up to the tiny girl and swung her around, and then with her legs straddling his waist and her arms clinging to his visibly grimy neck, he lifted her up and carried her to the center of the park crowd, chanting, "'Anna Banana Brown, look who's in town!' He rolled her onto the ground and shook her side to side on her back like an upended turtle, while Little Miss Gossamer giggled delightedly. "'Holy moly!' muttered Jane." Anna Banana Brown? My God, those boys are radioactive, totally toxic. Did you see that? Ryan and Patrick and Sean now appeared ambassadors of goodwill. Ryan pulled the tiny girl to her feet. Patrick was tucking his polo shirt into his waistband. Sean stopped incessantly rubbing his nose to give Anne an amiable nudge in the center of her collarbone. Isabel and Andrew stepped up to be introduced. Darla's apple-cheeked Angie handed over her soccer ball to Anne by way of greeting. Polly looked inquiringly at Nell. That's Aunt Brown, said Nell. She's here in the summer. She's littler than me, and because because she's so little, Ryan calls her Sprout, and, and that's Natalie Brown. Her mom, said Polly. Her big sister, corrected Nell and her daddy's her grandpa or something. I can't remember. Nell, forgetting the ice cream and the trip over the hill to Baskin Robbins, went off to rejoin her friends. Her daddy's her grandpa? Jane was looking at Natalie Brown, and then she said, well, let's go say hi. Natalie Brown was 10 years older than most of the girls in the park when the difference between 18 and 28 was vast. She had an oval face with a pointed chin, dark, observant eyes, black hair combed back from a high forehead, and wore round eyeglasses, a glacial shade of blue. Over the course of the summer and several visits to the playground, we found out Natalie was a doctoral candidate at UCLA. Her father was a studio honcho, and her divorced mother, a society grande dame, lived in San Francisco. Anne Brown was her half-sister. She referred to the child as one of her father's peripherals and to the woman who had given birth to her as a budding alcoholic stick insect with boobs who recently had graced the cover of Cosmo. She preached to me, Polly, Darla, and Jane about feminism, disapproved of our employers for hiring us and strangely considering her politics introduced us young women to a vernacular seemingly coined from gangster movies of the 1930s. In later years, I could characterize my friends from the park like this. Natalie drew her life lessons from history, Polly from the application of logic, Darla from a sense of irony, and Jane from altruism. At the time, however, I just slipped into their company with the ease and enthusiasm of a teenager. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.